Hi, this is Sean McCraney with Heart of the Matter. This is a live call-in show. I'll give you the number a little bit later. Uh, you can also email us if you want and uh, give us your question that way. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, God, we love you and we thank you. We ask your spirit to be with us, whether here at the station or at home, that the message we share will be in love, in truth, and we'll be able to have a good show in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Last week, we had a final caller who was cut off due to time constraints who asked a question about baptism. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Why was Jesus baptized? Uh, Etc. Before we get into the topic tonight of baptism, uh, I want to point out a very uh, vital thing to remember. We must take the Bible as a whole. You cannot selectively take a scripture and pull it out and use that as evidence for a certain practice or belief. You have to take it as a whole. And I know those of you who watch the show know I say this all the time. For instance, if there's 20 places in the scripture that say God is a spirit, and yet there are other verses that will say refer to the hands of God or the the eyes of God or the heart of God, you have to remember that the scriptures say God is a spirit. So when it also says the hands of God, you have to understand those in terms of the context. The context would be the Hebrews used anthropomorphic terms to describe God so that we would understand in our way what it means, the hands of God. And so it doesn't mean that he had literal hands, it's just a, a figure of speech, so to speak, that will help us in our understanding. Okay, so we have to take the whole scripture and can't throw out parts of it that don't fit with the whole thing in our understanding. Understanding this, let's first look in the Bible at what it says about salvation. I'll be really quick about this. There are several musts, some ifs when it, regarding salvation. John 3, 3, we must be born again regarding salvation. John 14, 6, no man comes to the Father but by Jesus. Okay, Romans 10, 9 and 10. This is an important one. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now there's no reference in there on baptism. It's a very simple verse and it lays out what salvation is. Let's go to John 3:14. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoso believeth in him should not perish. Believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nothing there again about baptism. So, and there are ample scriptures or references that talk about this faith and belief that saves us, gives us eternal life and no reference to baptism. But there are a few that do put baptism in a way that it seems like they're saying you have to be baptized to be saved. Now many churches, Christian included, there are some, and LDS churches, try to say that baptism is necessary for your salvation. Bruce R. McConkie, a now dead LDS theologian who wrote a lot of stuff for the LDS that they still believe, said the second birth begins when men are legally baptized by a legal administrator. Sounds like a lawyer wrote that. He was a lawyer. Uh, 
No, no, don't get mad. That's from Mormon Doctrine, page 84. By legal administrator, Bruce R. McConkie means somebody that is LDS and in good standing. Now listen to this quote by Orson Pratt regarding authority to baptize. He says, listen to this closely. But who in this generation have authority to baptize? None but those who have received authority in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Listen. All other churches are entirely destitute of all authority from God. And any person who receives baptism or the Lord's Supper from their hands will highly offend God. And he looks upon them as the most corrupt of all people. Both Catholics and Protestants are nothing less than the whore of Babylon whom the Lord denounces by mouth of John the Revelator as having corrupted all the earth by their fornications and wickedness. That's from the Seer, page 255. Now I get a lot of emails saying, you attack the LDS church. Wah, 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 you're always attacking it. You know, I'm just bringing out your facts. And that's a fact. Now if that's not attacking on the whole of Christendom, I don't know what is. And yet I can't, I can't bring out facts about the church without being attacked about not being politically correct and you're always attacking. You can't attack another religion. Wake up! What do, you think, what do you think Jesus did? What do you think Joseph Smith did? What do you think Orson Pratt did? That's a little bit of a side issue here on the topic, but let's just keep straight with that, all right? They attack, we're just proving the facts back. All right, let's take a moment and present the LDS version from the Bible of why they believe baptism is necessary, all right? In Acts 2.38, it says, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter says, Repent and be baptized. Now, I mentioned in the Bible earlier that the Bible is clear of what salvation is and where it comes from. So how should we take this verse where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins? This is a big LDS verse that missionaries will use. The key to this verse is in the Greek. It's, Repent or be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. What does that for mean in the Greek? All right, the Greek word for for is eis, E-I-S. And ice can be taken several ways as a preposition. It can indi indicate causality. It means it's caused by. So we could read it, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, in order to attain a remission of sins. We could read it that way. Or we could read it as a resultant proposition, a preposition. Excuse me. And so we would read it this way, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of... The remission of sins. Guess what the meaning is in the Greek when you read it in the Greek, what the preposition is. It's a resultant preposition. Therefore, you read that verse like this in the Greek. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, because of or as a result of the remission of your sins. This speaks perfectly, my friends, to what baptism is. It says that we get baptized because we've been forgiven. We get baptized because we know what Jesus did for us. 
we don't get baptized and the water gives us a remission of our sins. That's a, that's a total misapplication of that verse. Now, another verse LDS used to prove baptism is necessary for us to be saved is in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.21. And the missionaries use this one as well. And it says, talking about water, the like figure whereunto even baptism does now also save us. Okay, and that's where they generally stop. Okay, so if you read that, the like figure water where baptism does now save us and you think, wow, baptism saves us and you use that. But what they don't do is they don't read the whole verse in context and let's do that now. The like figure, meaning water, whereunto even baptism does now save us. Now we have a parenthetical reference. That means parentheses here in the scriptures. And it says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So what it's saying is you get baptized as an answer for your good conscience toward God for what he's done for you. That's the meaning of the, of the verse when it says where baptism does now save us. It's a sign of a good conscience toward God. Another one, a final one, is Mark 16.16. 16. It says, He that believe and is baptized shall be saved. And then it says, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, Latter-day Saints will say, it says right there, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Well, that's true. But it also says, but he that believeth not shall be damned. It says nothing about baptism there, does it? So what it, the, the operative word there is belief. If, you're, if you believe, you'll be saved. If you don't believe, you'll be damned. It's just that mark through in and be baptized as something that naturally happens to people that believe. Because of these verses, the LDS and even some Christian sects have made baptism a must to salvation. Even though there are a number of verses, like Romans 10.10, that speak of being saved without any association to it. Again, we must take baptism in the Bible as a whole. And as a whole, the, what do we do with these verses that describe baptism as it does? What is the role of baptism in the Christian life? Is it important? Let me give you a real clarifying moment. For it was for me when I learned this years, a few years back, but a real clarifying moment. Let me say that baptism plays the same role in salvation that circumcision played for the children of Israel in their salvation. Okay? Do you get it? How much of a role did circumcision play in the children of Israel for them to be saved? Was it circumcision that had anything to do with their salvation? We know from reading Hebrews, we know from uh, how people were saved, quote-unquote, how they went to par uh, par uh, spirit prison but waited till the Lord broke them free and sent them to paradise. What was it by? It was by faith, Hebrews chapter 11. So, it, circumcision did nothing for them with regard to being saved the same way baptism does nothing for you with regard to being saved but those were very important things that those people did as an indicator of their faith the best way to understand baptism is in terms of identification the Bible speaks of wet baptisms of dry baptisms and of damp baptisms Jesus spoke of being baptized as fulfilling suffering. 1 Corinthians speaks of baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
The children of Israel were baptized unto Moses, according to 1 Corinthians 10.2, when they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. That means it was a damp baptism as the cloud, as the cloud came over them. Damp, because the ground was dry. Believers today are baptized in identification with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. To Christian, baptism is an action believers take who desire to be publicly identified with Jesus. Well, say the religiously inclined. Well, say almost every LDS missionary as they come knocking on your door, hoping to convince you that you must not only be baptized, but you have to be baptized by them. Why was Jesus baptized if it isn't mandatory to your salvation? This is usually the second stronghold errant believers and Latter-day Saints turn to when trying to make baptism essential to salvation. Because Jesus was baptized, they say. Why was he baptized? To this I ask, why was Jesus circumcised? Was circumcision or was circumcision mandatory to salvation then? The problem is organized religion has taken a beautiful and powerful meaning in baptism and applied it and used it to their benefit, not to the benefit of genuine believers. They act as if actual baptism cleanses sin. They act as if water ordinance is an imperative to living with God again instead of presenting baptism as the beautiful expression of faith and as an, as an identifier that it is. Did circumcision have a power in and of itself? No. But it was a faithful act of willful identification that occurred. Religions have not only made baptism mandatory to salvation, they've also used it as a method of joining their respective church. Both applications fail to embrace the biblical meaning of baptism and both reasons smack of a means to control or corral believers into their own little special version of the gospel. So why was Jesus baptized? Just as there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism even unto Moses, there was a baptism of John the Baptist, which was a baptism unto repentance. John's baptism was not a Christian baptism. Nor were the baptisms that were uh, done by Jesus' disciples before his death and resurrection Christian baptisms. Till the crucifixion and the resurrection, the New Testament economy did not exist. John's baptism bound its subject to repentance, not to faith in Jesus Christ. John's baptism was not administer administered in the name of the Trinity. And remember, and this is very important. That those who John baptized, Paul rebaptized later. You can find that in Acts 18, 24, and Acts 19, 7. So are you with me so far on this? Now, was this baptism of John an empty ordinance that Jesus participated in? Never, never. And here is the number one reason Jesus was baptized, not in, in importance, but just number one. It was an initiatory ordinance of the Christian dispensation. Now, as Christ had submitted to uh, circumcision, which was the initiatory uh, ordinance of the Mosaic dispensation, it was necessary that he should submit to baptism, which was instituted by no less authority and was the introduction to his own dispensation of eternal mercy and truth. 
Christ was circumcised and observed all the other ordinances of the law of Moses, but not with a view to his own justification, but to fulfill the dispensation committed to him by the Lord and God, the creator of all things. That is a great reason for Jesus to have been baptized. But Jesus was also baptized for several other necessary and important reasons. First, our Lord is presented as the final and last high priest on earth. And if you don't believe that, who is to officiate in the household of God, if you don't believe that, you can go to Hebrews and read about it. All right? Every high priest in the Old Testament was initiated into his office by washing and anointing. So was Christ. And hence he was baptized, washed, and anointed by what? By the Holy Ghost. Thus he fulfilled the righteous ordinances of his initiation into the office of being a high priest and was thus prepared to make atonement once and for all for all the sins of mankind. At this ordinance, it seems that Jesus received the Holy Spirit as it descended like a dove. Once John had baptized Jesus, his mission was accomplished and he faded into obscurity so that the Lord could rise in, in notoriety. In this respect, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. In another respect, fulfilling all righteousness also meant fulfilling prophecy. Jesus let John the Baptist baptize him to fulfill the grand design of the beginning and end of the Mosaic Law and the Christian dispensations and to support John the Baptist's ministry as it was described in Malachi. You remember in Malachi, it, said, it talks about, Behold, there's a messenger that's going to come forth that I will send before uh, my way. That's a prophecy of John the Baptist. Jesus helped fulfill that by, by supporting John the Baptist's ministry. Why did John the Baptist baptize Jesus? The Lord told him in John 1, 29-34, that when John baptized the Messiah... He would know it was him by what? By the Spirit descending. So Jesus allowed John to baptize him so that that sign could be seen and he, the Messiah, would be known. And John called him, Behold, the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist baptized the Lord, God, or he who sent him out to baptize, told him, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptized with the Holy Ghost. In other words, God told John the Baptist to look for the sign of the Holy Ghost descending upon the Messiah. You're getting all that. The bottom line, however, Jesus being baptized has nothing to do with uh, being mandatory for your salvation. There are far too many instances in Scripture, uh, references and other things to say that baptism is completely separate from salvation. But, let me say this, I love the Lord's commandment for baptism. When I first started this show, someone brought to my attention that I hadn't been baptized. I had not given it any thought, and I didn't have a testimony of it. I didn't think it was necessary to salvation. I still don't believe it was. But I had a pastor who I, who I admire greatly baptize me several months ago, and the power that came from that accepting that and publicly identifying myself before family and friends with Jesus Christ as a thinking adult, not an eight-year-old kid being uh, or ordinanced into a church, was so supremely magnificent that I, I, I swear that baptism should be in everybody's book if they haven't done it. 
to Latter-day Saints or to those who have fallen away from the church. I would go to a local pastor and say, you know, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I want to be identified with Jesus Christ by being baptized publicly in his name and in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Will you do that for me? You can do that if you're LDS. Go to a pastor and ask him to be baptized as a public identifier as an adult. And you'll be able to go outside the walls of a, of, a, of a church without windows where people can't see you. And you publicly profess to the world that you're a Christian and you're going to follow him. And let me tell you something. There is such power in, in fulfilling that that comes with the Holy Spirit. And it comes with doing what the Lord wants you to do. But as far as being a part of your salvation, it has nothing to do with it. All right. We're going to go to the telephones. I'm going to uh, read some questions that we've had from uh, over the period of time and uh, see if that will get the operator's time to answer the calls. If I was born a homosexual, aren't I damned from birth, having been given no choice of my own? Um, I think that there are, this is my opinion, I believe that there are people who are born homosexual. Now, I know that some Christians don't believe that. I know the Mormons certainly don't believe that. But I believe there are people born homosexual. I believe there are people who are born uh, 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 thieves. I think there are people born liars. I think we're born in all kinds of different ways. And my standard response is, yes, I believe you could be born that way. Sometimes I think it is a choice. Uh, but if you were born that way, you're no different than anybody else, and you need to be born again. And so if you were born a homosexual, you're... Your claims against God for making you that way are no different than someone who's born a liar, someone who's born a thief, and we're all, we're all lie, and we've all stolen one way or another probably. We went through the Ten Commandments last week. So your special little sin is really no different than everybody else who comes into this fallen world as a result of Satan owning it and, and running it, essentially. And you just have to be born again. So I would take your, uh, your homosexual self or your heterosexual self and just get right to the Lord and say, hey, I want to be born again. Forgive me and let him take over your life and lead you the way he wants to instead of you leading yourself. So there's my answer to that question. Next question, uh, Sean, did you experience a lot of guilt when you left the LDS church? Um, I didn't experience guilt in the sense of, oh, I feel guilty toward God. I experienced guilt in the sense that I left my three daughters behind um, uh, in the Mormon faith because my wife was LDS and faithful and active at that time. And I sensed guilt that I may be abandoning my uh, responsibility as a father, which was built into you as a Latter-day Saint. And so um, that was difficult. But, you know, it's processional, meaning it takes some time and a process to come out of all those things. And so guilt is going to be a normal reaction no matter what. I would imagine that a cannibal feels guilty if he turns from cannibalism from eating people after, you know, it's just a, a normal thing that we go through. And then you'll suddenly, you know, come to realize, wow, that was really wrong. I don't feel. So I, I, there's, there's processes. Sorry for that uh, example if it was bad. Okay, we're going to go to Calvin on line one. I got some more questions here. But Calvin in Salt Lake City on line one. Calvin, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Uh, I have a question. Uh, since you come from Mormonism, I was wondering about your impression of the manner in which modern Christian churches solicit offerings and tithes, like in the middle of their meetings, how they ask the congregation to do that alm with tithing in public. In some cases, they have the uh, congregation parade up in front of the pulpit to give their tithes in front of everybody. I was just wondering about your impression of that practice. 
Calvin, I was uh, trained as a Christian and went to uh, my Bible studies with Chuck Smith in uh, Southern California. And in all their history, I think 35 years, uh, Calvary Chapel has never once solicited for funds, uh, Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. Uh, what they do is they have an offering, and it's completely anonymous, and, and they pass the things around. They do do that, but that's how they, how they do it. Everything else is just to the side. Now, I have two issues with the Christian church in collecting funds. One, I don't think they should be uh, making it their uh, primary objective. And two, I greatly resent them calling it tithing. I think that that is uh, uh, a uh, misrepresentation of the law. I think tithing was of the Old Testament. And I think that when they, they discount Sabbath day or they discount other Old Testament practices, but they'll use tithing on their members, I think it's an absolute crime and I'm against it. Uh-huh. And I and I and I, it's pretty sickening when um, when churches are bent on the almighty buck. So right. That's my well, opinion. most churches I've been to in this area uh, do their tithe, their offerings in the middle of the meetings. Wow. And uh, they pass around collection bowls and things like that. And uh, I've just found that really distasteful. That and, is. Uh, I agree with you. Hey, when you say in the middle of the meetings, do you mean like they do? worship some uh some announcements and then they do it or do they do it right in the middle of their sermon oh uh, no they they do it like they they have a song worship yeah and then they uh will do announcements and then they'll do an offering time yeah they'll do their sermon but it just uh doing that in public like that the alms in public just is uh it seems like they're trying to guilt and shame people into giving and yeah it's to me, it shows a lack of confidence by the pastors in the conversion of the congregations. Well, my opinion is right with yours, and I would say if you go to a church and the pastor makes or is behind people getting up physically and showing that they're paying, I'd walk from that place in a heartbeat. Yeah, I don't. I don't there's only one that I've seen that does that. Uh, still, just doing it in the middle is. Uh, I think that's one thing that not very many things that they can learn from Mormonism, but I think that may be one thing. Well, Calvin, the only, the only difference I have with you on that, though, is that Mormonism, Mormons are pretty smart. They're good businessmen. And what they do is they tie your, your very salvation to pain. Right, what, right. So you have to pay the 10% to get in the, in the temple to get your salvation right, which is ingenious. Right, yeah. That's also very expensive. So, uh, you know, that's pretty money-based, too, in my opinion. Right, right. Yeah. I agree with you. Hey, Calvin, great call. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for, thanks for the call and talk to you again. We're going to Steve in Clearfield. Steve, you are on Heart of the Matter. Steve, you're, are we on your... Uh, Steve? Yes. yes. You're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, you got to turn your TV down, brother. It's muted. Okay. Fire away. Okay. Are you there, Sean? I am. Okay. <laughs> hey, this is Steve. Uh, I got your book, and I wanted to thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, and I got it uh, about uh, three-quarters of the way read, so. Oh, excellent. You, do you, can you read it with that small print? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, I just uh, had a question earlier you touched about uh, an adult being... Uh, baptized Jesus was an adult yeah. and why would it why would you need to be baptized at eight years of age when if everything's done strictly by how he did it then wouldn't they want to be baptized as an adult great question great question Steve yeah I throw that out to the LDS audience someone call and tell us why Jesus was baptized a 33 year old man 
Uh, they're going to probably say because it was the beginning of his mission or ministry. But, you know, hey, if baptism applied to Jesus like it applies to members of the LDS Church, he should have been baptized as an eight-year-old boy. Exactly. Another, another thing that I've never understood and just come to realization on, if it's going to be families forever, which is stressed implorably, just, just is stressed and as a way to get, them, get members. Yeah. How are you going to be families forever if, like, for instance, my brother-in-law is going to be a god one day and his wife's going to be a goddess, and they're going to go and they're going to earn their way to be being gods and goddesses. They're going to have their own planet. Then they're going to have their son who's going to have his... He's going to be a god and his wife's going to be a goddess, and they're going to have their own planet. And then their oldest daughter is going to be a goddess and her husband who's going to be a god... They're going to have their own planet. How are they going to be a family forever if they're all separated on different planets? They're going to re. They're going to have family god reunions on uh, other planets somehow. I don't know. Those <laughs> I have no idea, dude. Those things used to plague me at night. Now I just kind of leave them behind. But I understand. Uh, I understand the point. Steve. And uh, just one final thought. Yeah. Uh, you notice there are no crosses at all anywhere to be found and i just wonder what you thought on that you know we did a show on crosses i gotta put a list of the shows uh we talked about that whole thing about lds and cross i can't remember what number it was 12 was the cross show 12 you can watch that online if you wanted to but you know bottom line they uh, believe the suffering occurred in the garden and that the cross is a is a sign of uh, punishment that many men have gone through and it wasn't really you unique for him Bottom line, that's what it is. Okay. All right, my brother. Thanks for calling. Thank you, Sean. Have a great night. All right, God Steve. Bless. You too. God bless you. Bye-bye. Before we go to Norm, Sandy, first-time caller, another quick question. Uh, it is one of your shows, Sean. You said you still sin, yet you claim to be born again. The following scripture says that if you are born again, you can't sin. 1 John 3, 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, for he is born of God. And then the, then the writer says, How do you account for your still sinning, Sean? Doesn't seem like your rebirth has done you much good. What that verse means is that when was sin paid for? It was paid for 2,000 years ago. And that sin is done. It's over with. Paid for in full. So when it says that I cannot sin, what it's saying is my sins have been paid for. Front, back, end, beginning, the whole lot of them. Now that doesn't give me license to go out and sin more, but I don't deny the, the fact or the reality that I still am a sinner. You know, I'm still in my flesh, like Paul talked about, and I still battle that war. So the, it's a misappropriation of of. Uh, facts here when you think that when you become a Christian, you never sin again. That's a pernicious lie. And if you believe that, Satan will step right in. And once you make a mistake as a Christian, he'll grab you and tear you apart. So you have to know I'm still a sinner. But you realize that that stuff was all paid for and you can't sin anymore because it was taken care of and paid for. Now, I wrote that to this emailer and he emailed me back. So that's a convenient way to justify sinning on and on. 
And all that tells me is he does not understand what happens when you're born again and that you don't want to sin when you're born again. You want to do everything you can to, to refrain from it. So I hope that clarified it. Let's go to Norm and Sandy on line three. Norm, you're on Heart of the Matter. Well, thank you. I'm first, a first-time caller. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, my question relates to the accuracy of the New Testament. Okay. I've been studying some of uh, New Testament history, and <clears throat> some of the things that I found out, and I just want you to address this. Now, Matthew, for example, the Gospel of the we're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John here. And the Gospel of Matthew, according to my studies, was written by a fellow by the name of Isidore, who was actually one of uh, Matthew's disciples. And Matthew uh, had written some of his notes in Aramaic, but Isidore, as I understand it, wrote in Greek. But he didn't write the Gospel of Matthew until A.D. 71, and then he accredited it to Matthew, who uh, was his teacher, which was the custom in those days. Norm, where do you get that information? Uh, I'll, I can tell you in just a minute, okay? Okay. This is pretty much uh, a lot of uh, a lot of biblical information that's available out there. But you got to give me you got to give me references, man. Yeah, I will. Okay. Let me let me just finish. Uh, Mark was written uh, basically from the notes of Peter, and he was just a young guy running around at the time, and uh, he wrote in AD 68. Now you you probably wouldn't disagree with that. I won't disagree on the t the dates. On no. the dates. Luke, who is known as the physician of Antioch, was actually a convert of Paul mm -hmm. and learned from him the life and teachings of Jesus not until A.D. 47. Uh -huh. And he didn't formulate his many notes in the gospel <clears throat> until after Paul had died. Okay. Luke had never met Jesus. Yeah, you're right. And on his story, Luke uh, was a Greek, Paul yeah. Related to, related to him, and he didn't write until uh, A.D. 82. Yeah. What about John? And then John... Uh, it was the Gospel of John was actually written by Nathan, who was a Greek Jew from Caesarea, and he was an associate of John. Now John had the other Gospels and saw a lot was omitted, and so he took and supplanted a lot of it from his own uh, memory, and yeah. then referenced from the three other Gospels already written. But he didn't write until A.D. 101. Okay, Norm, stop for one second. Let me say to the listening audience, this is Norm, and he is proposing that. The four Gospels are, uh, are composite, and they could have been written by other people than what, who the authors say they were, or that the authors weren't there. In essence, I think, Norm, your point is that it's not reliable. Is that true? Not only, yeah, and, and let me just, one other point, and because you've been quoting from Paul tonight a lot about baptism, mm. and Paul's writings actually represents 25% of, uh, of the New Testament, uh -huh. and Paul never met Jesus. Now, he, Paul did meet Jesus. Well, he... he uh, well, you're not going to believe that account because it's in the well, Bible. Well, there was a conflicting account when he was on the road to Damascus. It wasn't a second account. It was a first-hand account. And so, but, but, that's, but that was his, what his claim was. But what, let me ask you, Norm, so we can get to the heart of the matter here. Are you, are you standing with the LDS and saying that the Bible's not reliable? Or are you standing as, a, as an agnostic or a non-believer saying it's not reliable? What I'm saying is, is that I don't see... Uh, the information that's coming forth uh, about the Old or the New Testament, and Bible in particular, and the information that we now know about it, how anybody can really okay. believe in it. Now give us the references of how you now know about this, Norm. Okay, this one, there's a couple of references I have. One is the Urantia book. Okay, the Urantia book is a piece of garbage. I'm sorry, but it's a piece of garbage. 
Well, no, that's your opinion. No, it's not my opinion. It's fact. The Urantia book, look at. I challenge any reader, so you don't think I'm just a, a buffoon more than I already am. Go get the Urantia book and try to understand it, first of all. Well, I'm not claiming that I believe in what... The Urantia book is not trustworthy. Well, in all what it says. Keep going. Next ones. Just ask where I got this information. I know, and I'm, and I'm and because I'm verifying that your sources are just sorely messed up. Give you your next reference. Uh, it's a book called The Jesus Mysteries. Oh, I wonderful. Speaking Peter Gandy. Wonderful. How about going to Norm Geisler? How about going to Josh McDowell? How about going to somebody who uh, speaks uh, the Greek? And how about somebody who's not against the Word of God? Listen, Norm, Norm, you, Norm, you are misled. They're against, they're against the mythical Christians. Look, at, you can say it's mythical all you want. You are an unbeliever without faith. I, to have you on the show is I ridiculous. Because you're In what? What's your faith in, Norm? My faith is in God in a direct relationship one-on-one -on -one with God. Yeah, how do you learn of God, Norm? How you, without a priest. Norm, how do you learn of God? Between. How do you learn of God? You learn of God through direct... Uh, Revelation? God. Okay, excellent. So, so, Norm, you have no guideline whatsoever. You trust no ancient scholarly writings that we've seen uh, verifiable proof by the thousands. You don't trust it. You trust your own ability to look up and have God give you your own scripture. I have had my own experience. You know, I believe you have. I really believe you have. But Norm, this show is about building faith and the word of God will someday surprise you when you see how infallible and inerrant it is. Well, I believe in the word of God. What is it, Norm? I believe that I have to have it uh, transferred to me through a prophet or a priest or a bishop. Or how about a book? Or anybody else or a preacher on the, on the TV. How about a book? What's your God's name? I'll call him God. You call him God? Sure. Okay. Where did you get learn that from? Where did I, le I learned it from my personal experience. He told you his name was God? Well, Norm, is, Norm, it's an endless quagmire. God. It's an endless quagmire. And in the end, yes, we do have to have faith. But I will place my trust in this book and its writings and its history not according to the Urantia, but based on everybody else and what I've read over anything that you've said tonight. But I'm sorry, I appreciate your thoughts, but I don't, I don't agree with them at all. Well, you know, the two testament was actually put together by a committee of people who may or may not have been believers. Norm, we got to go on. we got other callers. You're I appreciate your call. Thanks so much. We're going to Lorette, first-time caller on Line 2 in Salt Lake City. Lorette, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Hi. Hi. Do I talk? You talk. I talk. I might listen. I'm just kidding. Huh? I'm kidding. Go ahead and talk. Okay. Hi there. I uh, forget your name. It's Sean. Sean. My, I'm a first-time caller. Uh-huh. And um, it's so interesting listening to you. I could, I could be on the same show with you. I think we could talk all night. No, that'd be fun. Uh, you know, when they were saying, like with Joseph Smith with, and polygamy, uh -huh. they started, that's how the Mormon church was started, was with polygamy. Mm -hmm. Evidently, Joseph Smith had a revelation from Jesus Christ that polygamy was the way to go. Mm -hmm. Then they couldn't become a, a Salt Lake or Utah couldn't become a state. So uh, supposedly Joseph Smith had another revelation from Jesus Christ and says, "No, we've got to quit it because we want everyone to get along." Now I had a sister-in-law who's born LDS, very devout. In fact, she was here. She was going to go on a mission, 
and she's, she told me this out of her own mouth. I says, where in the heaven's name did you read this? I have never, I've never heard of this. She says, well, no, that's what it says. She says, but I haven't read the scriptures lately, so she couldn't um, really go into detail on that. Then I asked her, I says, well, how come your Mormon garments don't have the Masonic labels on them anymore? They did have the label of the Salt Lake Temple stating that it was authentic garment from the church, which they make, and, of course, people have to buy them. Uh, she, she didn't know that. She didn't know why the labels were taken off. She didn't know why they quit the, um, when you go into the temple. I was LDS, been to the temple. Where what got you to leave? Huh? What got you to leave? Well, you know, the reason I ever got into it is because I married a divorced man, and the Catholic Church at that time could not, <laughs> very divorced man, and he was LDS, but not real active member. His, mm. all his parents, his parents and brothers and sisters, his whole family was LDS. With, uh, his father was the fifth child of the fifth wife, so there was polygamy and the usual Mormon whatever. Right. But um, anyway, we went. We were very, very active, but we never learned anything. And this, I've been reading this book, The God Makers. Yeah. Everything in that book, so help me God, is true. Oh. I've been there. I've done that. Well, you know what? I, I really appreciate your call. And you've uh, given other LDS people out there a bit of your experience that helps them. We try. I don't know if you've seen the show before. I really try to whip through the calls quickly. I know. But you can go to our site, and if you can email us, you can post something there and share your experience with other people on the message board. Okay. You know, in the hereafter, all the families could meet at Colob. Excellent. I appreciate your show. All right. You have a good night. Listen, uh, just to make a clarification so Latter-day Saints don't get mad, uh, it was Brigham Young, um, actually... It wasn't Brigham Young. It was, um, who was it? Was it John Taylor? Uh, who renounced on, the, gave the manifesto to stop polygamy in, uh, I think, 1890. And then 1909, the second manifesto came out so that Utah could receive a statehood. It wasn't Joseph Smith. And uh, as far as the, uh, the garments and things and the labels, I don't know. I don't stand by what was said because I don't really know what she was talking about completely. But... Um, other insights, and we're here to open and openly dialogue and talk about this stuff so that you can research for yourself and see. All right, we are going to Preston in West Jordan. First time caller on line one. Preston, you're on Heart of the Matter. Preston? Yeah, I'm right here. All right, man. You got to turn your TV down if it's up. Yeah, it's down. It's off. Okay. Hey, I just got a question for you. First thing, um, let's see. The, the tithing factor... Um, tithing was a law of God, from my understanding, or tithes were from him in Malachi, right? Yeah, they, they practiced tithes before. Okay, so why do you say it's a Mormon thing then? Because from my understanding, all churches, or at least most churches, honor that commandment. No, uh, when I was talking about that, the question was from the caller, what do I think of the Christian churches? Calvin called and said, what do I think of the Christian churches? and their stance on tithes and collecting them in their meetings. And, I, and what I said was, I don't appreciate them using the word tithe because we are not under uh, that obligation. The scripture said in the New Testament that we're to be cheerful givers. It's the only reference to giving. They don't, the word tithing is not in the New Testament. And so we're not under a 10% obligation. In fact, when you become a true believer, you're more like under a 100% obligation. So, but to, to lap, when Christians use the word tithe or pastors on their congregates, it bothers me because 
They will renounce other Old Testament practices, but they'll use tithing as a way to uh, get money. Okay, that sounds... Okay. My other question is a little bit more towards you. Um, okay. What, what do you get out of... It? And I know you're very careful in the way you address the Mormon Church, and I appreciate that. Excellent. But what do you get out of... I mean, it seems like most of your responses to questions comes back to kind of ripping on the LDS religion. Yeah. My question is, what do you get out of that? Like, yeah. What, what, What's what my personal your, benefit? That? Uh-huh. Maybe well, I don't understand the show so much. It is my first time calling, but uh, let me that's tell you. the question. Uh, when I was LDS, and I know there's a burden on many LDS people. I came out from being LDS 40 years, very active, participated, and I know the burden. I also know the joy and the liberty and the just absolute freedom of being in the Lord. My sole purpose is to help Latter-day Saints know Jesus Christ through spiritual regeneration, through rebirth, if they don't already know it. My second purpose is to help Latter-day Saints accept or embrace the Bible as inerrant. In the end, I would love to see Mormonism doctrinally fall to its knees. And what I get out of it is I believe I am following what the Lord has led me to do. I don't get any, I'm nothing but poverty as far as money. Uh, we, are, we borrow everything or things are loaned to us. Uh, I, there's no gain for it that way. I'm missing my daughter's high school volleyball uh, start tonight which has been uh, very important to me our whole married life. I've been to every one of her games. I'm not there to do the show. It's very important to me that Latter-day Saints start worshiping Jesus Christ in their meetings personally and, and respecting the Bible as inerrant. Those are my two points. Okay, and those two points are really good. I agree. Jesus Christ is the focal point and should be. Should be. And uh, always should be. But I don't... I don't understand where you say the burden comes from being a Mormon. What burden is that? Well, the reason, and I mean this with all respect, the reason you don't understand it is because you don't have the burden, you haven't been released from it. And until you're released from it, you don't know what's on your back. And what the burden is, and the scriptures speak of it, it's the burden of the law. And it's like carrying a big dead weight around on your back, the law, because you have to conform in order to be righteous before God and in order to be worthy in the LDS church. And when you are constantly trying to conform and perform, you are under a burden. And that burden, I'm not saying that when you find Jesus, you become a sinner. I'm saying that the burden is lifted because it was placed on him completely. And he took that burden and your sin, and you have no more qualifying to go. And you should be able to rejoice in that relationship as a Latter-day Saint. To just praise Jesus for what he did for you, and in faith walk with him completely. Not worrying about being worthy anymore. And then you will be worthy, which is the irony of the whole thing. And... Uh Part of me, I understand that the phrase uh, performance does not dictate your value, and I totally 100% support that. Okay. My performance does not dictate the way I value myself and my relationship with God and the way He feels about me. I totally believe that. Okay. But I also feel like that burden, or how you describe it, or the simple commandments that He gives us, 
And those commandments are a blessing to follow. They're not confining nor restrictive. I don't view them as a burden and something I lug around. I view them as almost a, a freeing factor from the consequences of sin. Does that make sense? It makes sense having been LDS, but it doesn't make sense when I apply it to the relationship with Jesus because there is a burden to uh, meet the requirements that are necessary for your salvation. And if you read the, the, I'm sure you have, but if you read the different apostles and prophets and their commentaries, I mean, you're, you're under burden under everywhere you turn, from home teaching to, uh, I mean, to doing your temple endowment to tithing. This is law, Sabbath day observance. It's law, law, law. And that is a burden. And if you watch our show online from last week, we talked about the law and how it, it's not, it can't be both. It can't be grace and it can't be the law. It's going to be one or the other. There's no mixture. And that's, that's the point. Can I send you our book? Um, I'll be, um, let's see. Yeah, you can. That's not a problem. You bet. Okay. Fine. That will help explain my uh, story better, and then you can call and you can maybe say what you don't agree with on that. But you know what? I really appreciate your call because uh, you're, you're a thinking person and you're, uh, you're polite, and you let me know what you believe, which was uh, fine. You're letting me know what you believe, and you're not backing off of it. The thing that makes me mad and when I get emails for getting mad on are when Latter-day Saints call and they try to pretend that they are uh, the exact same as the Christian community, and they're not. But you're at least stating what you believe, and I appreciate it greatly, Preston. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it, Sean. Take care, man. You too. All right, bye-bye. We're going to Glenn and Sandy on line four. Glenn, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Yeah, I have been watching you for the last couple weeks, and I am getting ready to tomorrow night actually going into a bishop's court oh and uh i have all my experiences spiritual experiences have been with the savior not not in the holy ghost uh-huh. and when people have asked me in the past what i believe i i've always said i believe in the gospel of jesus christ uh-huh. but um how how do i put myself in the way of having being born again, or the new heart, or what the Savior tells us He will give us. Well, the way you do it is you believe, like you've said already in your heart, that He is the way, that you're a sinner, that you cannot uh, follow Him or obey Him without His help, that you need to be forgiven and a new spirit, and you're willing to turn your life over completely to Him. And when you pray that prayer, and you ask Him for that, He is faithful in supporting you and sustaining you and giving you that new life. He may not do it immediately. It may take time for you to recognize it. I don't know. But I know you're, you're secure with him once you do it. And then he gives you the power to overcome the things that you do in your life that are destructive to yourself. The reason I can say this is because it happened to me completely this way. How do I read more about your story? I've kind of got on the net, but I can't find or get around to where I need to get to your book. Stay online, and the operator will pick up line four, and we'll get your address, and we'll send one out to you. You want to you wanna offer your life to the Lord right now? I do. Then let's do it, brother. What's your, what's, uh, your first name? Glenn. Glenn, I'm going to pray with you, and I don't know any order to do this. And so if you want to pray on your own with me, you can do it, and I won't say a word. Pray. Okay. Glenn, 
Heavenly Father, Glenn and I are on the phone, and Lord, we just come to you, and Glenn wants to offer his life to you. He wants to recognize himself verbally as a sinner, and he asks, Lord, that you give him spiritual regeneration. You give him new life. You said that you must be born again. Glenn wants to be born again, so we ask you that you'll just show him that you will give him new spirit. You, will for, you have forgiven him of all his sins, past, present, and future, and you will be with him as a strength and guide as he goes through this court and as he goes through the rest of his life. Glenn, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Glenn, do you ask, ask Heavenly Father to forgive you of your sins? I ask Heavenly Father to forgive me of my sins. I ask Jesus to take over my life completely, and I will do whatever he wants me to do. Jesus, take over my life. I will do what you will have me do. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Glenn, we, uh, our camera people are raising their hands. I want to tell you, brother and my spiritual brother, that uh, you have just joined the body of Christ and you've done what is necessary to know him. You have just been saved. And I don't care if you're going into that court for murdering a thousand people. You have been saved from your sins. Jesus died for you on the cross for this to happen. And you have just done it. So now the problem is, is do you believe it? And I think you do. You wait. Pray to the Lord when we hang up and say, I want to wait, Lord. Show me. Show me. Give me the strength. And Glenn, you're going to feel it. I'll send you our book. Please stay on the line and uh, call back and let us know how you're doing. Thank you. We praise God. Hold on now. Okay. We, uh, we are down to a minute 16, I see. And uh, I just want to praise God. For this experience, Latter-day Saints, you don't have to leave your church right now. You don't have to go into a bishop's court. You don't have to believe me or like the show or anything about it. But you do need to be born again. And you need to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. You need to repent and ask Him to forgive you of all your sins. As you do this, he will take care of all your worries and all your woes, and you will know him in a way that you've never known him before. If you can't say you've been spiritually reborn, then you need to go to the Lord, and I challenge you to go to him tonight. And just do what Glenn just did on the air, asking him to take over, to be your spiritual guide, to give you a new spirit, to um, show you in his way that you have been forgiven. As you do this, he will step in and change your life like he did mine, like he will do Glenn's, like he's done everybody else in this area. I pray that you'll do it. Next week, we're going to have a fun show because we're talking about culture. And it's going to be fun. It's one of my favorite topics. Might be even funny. We'll see you then on Heart of the Matter. God bless. Go get him, Glenn. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising the dawn's awaiting till a hundred